You're listening to the Binge Media Podcast Network on BingeMedia.net. And now, the Binge Aftertaste. Hello? My name is Elliot Moore. I'm just going to talk in a very positive manner, giving off good vibes. We're just here to use the bathroom. And we're just gonna leave. I hope that's okay. Plastic. Talking to a plastic plant. Welcome to this review of The Happening. Part of the binge movie aftertaste, M. Night Shyamalan Retrospective. Look, I don't know if you guys have heard about this article in the New York Times about honeybees vanishing. Well, apparently, honeybees are disappearing all over the country. Join Garrett, Matt, and the returning Mike Ganeri as they look at the entire span of Shyamalan's work. You're not going to be one of those assholes on the news who watches a crime happen and not do something. We're not assholes. From that little-known e-weekly emission, The Sixth Sense, all the way through his new release, Old, coming out July 23rd, the boys look at all the signs of what makes Shyamalan possess one of the most fascinating careers in the history of Hollywood. Mother of God, what kind of terrorists are these? Why did Shyamalan become the black sheep and not join his family in the doctor's profession? All right, let's hear some theories about why this might be happening. When did everything go wrong? My firearm is my friend! It will not leave my side! And why the hell did Mike not see the sixth sense until this retrospective? Global warming. The answers to all these questions and more, all coming up courtesy of Binge Media. Maybe people are setting off the plants? What are you saying? That guy was crazy. We have to save them. They're already dead. The Happening, released June 13th, 2008, because this is a Friday 13th movie. Budget on this was $48 million, box office $163.4 million, and this is directed ever so confidently by M. Night Shyamalan. Cheese and crackers, guys. This podcast is happening. I am so excited. More Shyamalan. I am once again joined by... Well, I'll go to Matt second this time, because, Mike, I have questions for you, sir. Oh, yeah. (laughs) On our first podcast of this series... We were going over the fact that you had never seen The Sixth Sense, and after me and Matt kind of got over the shock of that, it kind of settled in as I was editing that podcast that you had mentioned, I haven't seen The Sixth Sense, I think I've seen Unbreakable, I haven't seen Signs, I've seen The Happening many times. Back up. Yeah. You've seen The Happening many times? Yes. Yes. It's in my wheelhouse. Okay, so I first saw it, as I think I said last week, uh, I first saw it in a high school science class, which is insane that that happened um yeah that's a sign of like that maybe the portrayal of a high school science teacher in this film is actually not that inaccurate that a high school science teacher (laughs) could be that incompetent and just flailing yes so that was that was the thing it was a class that if i if i can just go on a bit of a tangent that was a class that i i like had my schedule like shifted around i transferred into it from like a very normal competently run science class into this completely incompetently run one where it was like at the beginning of the semester, we were watching actual documentary videos. Our teacher was incredibly lazy, and it was just literally just pull out the TV and just put in a video. And at first, it was like actual 
documentary videos about rare diseases or something like that. And then it became like Lorenzo's Oil. So it's like, okay, well, you know, we're kind of getting into, you know, Hollywood territory, but hey, at least it's like actually science-based. And then like by month three, we were into The Happening. And this is, that was the first time I saw this film. It was not to last. It immediately struck a chord. This is my kind of thing. Like I brought up the core multiple times. Yes. I consider this movie and the core to be like, they're kind of like sister films where it's like, they're movies where they're really just entertainingly bad. And they're bad in ways that makes you realize how stupid a lot of other movies are, but that they're not transcendently stupid. Movies that are so poorly written that you watch them and you go, oh my God, like it makes you realize cliches from other movies. You know what I'm saying? You're like, oh, mm-hmm. so in a, in a normal movie, that's, that would be where such and such happens. And here they completely stripped it of any kind of identity or, you know, like character. So you just see the, the writing and it's like so awkwardly, obviously bad that it, it's just delightful. And so I've seen it a couple times since then. I don't remember every time, like every, how, what the other contexts were. I think I showed it to somebody once. I caught it on TV another time, saw it. Just today, again, and I've watched, you know, like, clips from it. Like, this is like a Wicker Man style. I feel like this movie and Wicker Man were, like, really hitting the internet. It was, like, right when YouTube was, like, really rising. Yes. And it was, like, people, like, had to put their super cuts of all the times that, you know, uh-huh. someone gets stung by a bee or Mark Wahlberg says something that makes you wonder if he <laughs> believes in anything that he's saying, you know. We'll get into that. So you're watching this in class. At what point was everybody in the class is kind of looking at each other like, what is this teacher on to show us this movie? Uh, I think at that point we had all pretty much checked out. We were all, okay. like, we were all, we'd given up. You know what I'm saying? We were like, spoiler alert, we were like Wahlberg at the end of the movie where he's like, fuck it, if I die, I die. I'm going out. Uh, it was like that. Like, we were like, you know, the wind will kill us. We're just going to watch this movie regardless. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> this is an R-rated movie, by the way. So that was not uh, allowed. You know, so yeah. I, and yet somehow that slipped under the radar. That's so great. What a fantastic story. Matt, can your story, the first time you watched this, top that one? No, and I'm glad he went first because I have no grandizing backstory with my experience with happening. Largely because I did not see this in the theater. And I did not see this movie until college, as a matter of fact. So I waited a conceivable amount of time because after Lady in the Water, I swore off M. Night Shyamalan. I was done. I was not going to watch any of his movies in a theater. And unless I was justifiably tased or sedated and strapped to a chair, I was not going to willingly watch one of his movies on my own. But fortunately, I was not on my own. I was with a bunch of buddies who had seen this movie multiple times and viewed it in the way that a lot of people do, like The Room, where it's, you got to see this movie, it's so bad. They wouldn't even tell me it was a Shyamalan movie because I would have jumped out the window. (laughs) I was so disenfranchised with this man after Lady in the Water. And I saw it, and I'd be lying if I said I didn't have a good time. Granted, this is a movie that I think works in the same way that The Room or Birdemic work much better with a crowd than they do when you're by yourself. Yeah. Very different reaction when I was watching it in preparation for this show, but I was not dying to go to the theater. God knows, 2008, we had movies like The Dark Knight and Iron Man. I had better ways I could spend my time if I wanted mm-hmm. entertainment. I'm like, really? M. Night Shyamalan's got a team with Mark Wahlberg, who I just I don't feel one way or the other about. This was not going to be 
the movie that swayed me, despite every fucking trailer swimming it down your throat of M. Night Shyamalan's first R-rated movie. That was a selling point, because the village and Lady yeah. Butter did not do particularly well, so they had to market it as, oh, he's going dark and gritty. Everything about this movie, and everything about Shyamalan, I grew to just utterly resent. And that's why I didn't see it. Interesting, because I do remember that, and I remember Shyamalan actually being, if it's not in the trailers, then like some ads or something for it, where he said, I swear to God, these clips are available. You gotta search them out. He's saying, people were running from the theater screaming, it's my first R-rated movie, I wanted to go as intense as I could, so they, they gave me the green light to just go all out, and you know what? I gotta Wait. say, I was hyped. Was this the trailer? Like I said, I used to listen to the radio a lot uh-huh. way back then. You know, I used to listen to Power Stern a lot, and I think they might have been radio ads, kind of like The Village. Kind of promo, these were yeah. radio ads. And he would come on saying that the screenings of this were very successful and people <laughs> running out screaming. And he's playing, pretty much putting himself as William Friedkin in The Exorcist. You know what no, I'm saying? No, William Castle, like, really. Like, like, uh, yeah. like, like <laughs> ah, the tingler will scare you out of your seat. Like, it's like that's how, how far back that's going. It's like Stephen King of Axe Overdrive where he looks dead at you and says, I'm going to scare the hell out of you. That's the exact comparison I made, Matt. So... I was hyped. I actually, at this point, I had some pretty decent connections. I was going to college around this time, and I was able to get tickets to an early screening of this. And I came out of it, and people asked me, what did you think of it? I actually told them I thought it wasn't bad. I thought it was actually Shyamalan going on the right path. Those were my exact words. And so they ended up going to go see it, and they came to me going, Garrett, what drugs were you on? What is wrong with this movie? But I wasn't the only one. Stephen King had positive things to say about this movie when it was out. Roger Ebert gave this movie three and a half stars. Wait, really? Yes. That's interesting, considering his review of The Village, which is like one of the all-time absolutely savage pans of a a contemporary film. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. King said it was the best scary film that summer because M. Night Shyamalan really understands fear, partly because this time he's completely let himself go, hence the R rating. These are quotes from him. And partly because after Lady in the Water, he had something to prove. I don't want to be a jerk this pretty about high it, praise. but Stephen King's got bad taste in movies, right? Like, he basically oh, yeah. hates The Shining. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, it's an odd opinion to have. Not an odd opinion for Stephen King to have, I guess. But, yeah, I, I know that with every Shyamalan movie, there's some pocket of critics. Like, I, I was I was reading up on uh, Lady of the Water last week and that one it ended up on like the Kajay du Cinema list like in 2004 of like or 2006 of best films of the year and there's always some segment of auteurists who really vibe with Shyamalan's doing like I think that Ignati Vishnevetsky wrote something about the happening where they he, you know tried to reclaim it and there's like they're, well we'll get into these aren't yeah so M. Night Shyamalan after Lady in the Water he had this script right in the middle of that movie he started writing this script and the script was called The Green Effect. And he shopped it around, and apparently only M. Night Shyamalan was really high on this script. Once again, nobody wanted to make this movie. But, Matt, as is proven, as we did the X-Men series, 20th Century Fox doesn't exactly have the best taste in the world. <laughs> A company I used to work for, by the way. And they picked it up. So they, once again, gave this man carte blanche to do whatever he wanted. And this was released... Made over 100 mil, but again, as you can tell, 13 years later, the three of us are still laughing about it. We haven't gotten into the review yet. So that's pretty much the making of this. It didn't go through too many hands. He got Mark Wahlberg. He got John Leguizamo. And here we are. So you guys ready to dive into this? 
I think it's time for it to happen. There we go. So after some opening credits that take place amongst a bunch of clouds, we cut to Central Park in New York at 8.33 a.m., where we hear wind whistling by and see two girls reading. One starts babbling before sticking a hat pin in her neck. Funny point, the actress who played, not the girl who does the stabbing, but the one who witnesses it, her name's Kristen Conley. She's gone on to be in House of Cards, Cabin in the Woods. Yeah, Cabin in the Woods, yeah. She has since denounced this film and refuses to talk about it when asked about it in interviews. <laughs> Is she being asked about this film a lot? She has one scene in uh, it, you know? Uh, yeah, it's a credit on her resume, and so people do ask her about it. This is one of those movies where if you find somebody who is in this movie, you have to ask about it, don't you? I guess. It's like, you, do you disavow the happen? Like, if she's at, like, a fucking Senate subcommittee hearing or something like that, like... Yeah. <laughs> Miss Connolly, do you, are you aware at this time? <laughs> We also see a bunch of hard hat workers start jumping off buildings they're working on. And I'll say, you know, I don't think this is a bad way for the film to start. The shot of the guys jumping off was probably better in concept and execution because quite a few of those bodies look like dummies as they're heading towards the ground. But these opening scenes of death, I thought, got the film off to a pretty decent start. Um, I, I kind of agree. It's not a terrible opening. I do think there's one part that I thought was kind of funny which is where one of the guys falls off the building and like the guy who's i guess sort of the foreman he like looks over uh-huh. and within two seconds and the guy is like maybe 30 or 40 feet away from him and within like two seconds he's like wow it's wilson he can tell that the guy has i don't know something about it is like it's almost like he could tell from the sound he made when he fell or something like that like that's that's a wilson sound but I'm, I'm kind of nitpicking a little bit there but. Uh, well this movie's a gold mine for nitpicking number one so let's not act like that's a uh-huh. bad thing I'll say this. I think the opening of this movie is more so the direction I would have liked the entire movie to go, where it's unexplained. It's just a, it's a phenomenon, and the unknown aspect, it has a Twilight Zone quality, and, you know, Shaman's a horror guy. There is a horror component where it's like, why are people committing mass suicides? Like, is this movie going to be, like, signs about aliens? Is it going to be another stance on religion, like, is it going to be a cult? So I think the fact that Shyamalan's played with themes about religion, and he's done movies about life after death, so I think there's a good, if not great, there is a solid potential for this movie to take this and really run with it. I don't understand, though, why the other woman is not affected by what's occurring. Yeah. It's never explained. Until you read the script. Now, I did some digging because I was very curious. Uh In the original script, part of the revelation was going to be that people who give off, I don't know if this is an in-joke because it's Mark Wahlberg, people who give off, quote, good vibrations are less <laughs> likely to be affected by this natural phenomenon. Like, see, so if you give off a negative vibe, you're more prone to be murdered by this. Oh, okay. Other nature. But let me ask this. If you don't originate in a certain area, but then you arrive in that area and you're there, do you pose a threat? Like, if you're a new kid on the block, is that going to be a problem? The Departed has a lot to say in this movie. <laughs> There's a cut in this movie that is disastrous. Not even disastrous necessarily in the moment, but, like, having seen the movie multiple times, I really picked up on it this time. And, and, and like, as, like, a turning point from when the movie goes from, like, 
promising to really there's no way to return from that. And that's the moment where like the construction foreman guy, and I don't know if this actor is, I didn't, I didn't recognize him, but he's like seeing all the, the, the death and the carnage around him. And he says, if I'm remembering right, he goes, God in heaven, immediate cut to Mark Wahlberg in a sweater vest. And it's like, it's so, it's laughable in the, in how, about how little that shot of Mark Wahlberg sitting in this classroom wearing a sweater vest. You guys read this article in the New York Times about the honeybees? It, it's laughable how little that shot answers the previous shot. You know what I mean? And I know that it's not supposed to be a yeah. literal. I mean, if it, if it is supposed to be a literal answer to the previous shot, then that's a very strange choice. But I know it's not supposed to be that. But that's what editing is for. You know what I mean? To be like, yeah. uh-huh. this, this justification is... is Topple, and it shouldn't be. So we really should not have this in here. And and once we're introduced to this performance of Mark Wahlberg as Elliot Moore, Elliot. Yeah. well, yeah. then you really are in for you're in for something. The perfect storm of a lead-in for what you're going to get. It really is. Yeah. Here's the question: Was that the best the editor could do? Were the other choices that bad that that ended up being the best one they were able to get in here? You gotta uh, think there's at so. least like an establishing shot of like. A, high school that they could just for for two seconds yeah. like you're watching fucking good like, point sister sister mm-hmm. or something and there's just like a two second <laughs> shot of a building and you're like okay it's a different place i get it sister, it reminds sister. me of <laughs> yeah it reminded me of the cut in The Lost World when that girl gets killed, and then they cut to Jeff Goldblum yawning on the subway. Oh, yeah. yeah. It was like that <laughs> level of abruptness where it's like, is there a real missing? And, Mike, when you said uh-huh. there has to be a better cut, I'm like, yeah, anything would have been better than the final cut that was released. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> So all this decent setup, as Mike has set up, is completely halted when we meet our lead character, science teacher Elliot Moore, played by an extremely miscast Mark Wahlberg. Funny tidbit, Shyamalan has said that he wrote this part with Wahlberg in mind. Bullshit. He's lying. (laughs) Well, he said that Wahlberg had been on an upswing around this time. He'd been nominated for an Oscar. And let's not forget... Wahlberg's brother was kind of made in the acting world by that performance he had, as small as it was, in The Sixth Sense. So Wahlberg had expressed wanting to work with Shyamalan. But Wahlberg shows up on set and asks Shyamalan why he saw him in the part, because it's not a cop or a crook as he's been playing his entire career. It's a goddamn science teacher. Shyamalan said, and I quote, this is why I love this man to death. He said he saw Wahlberg as wide-eyed and innocent. And then Wahlberg responded, have you seen my criminal record? (laughs) I don't know if we even want to get into that. But really, I kind of see a little bit, having heard that quote, I kind of see a little bit of what Shyamalan means in that Wahlberg is a very, um, I guess, earnest as as an actor. Like, you know what I mean? Like, in his best roles, there's such such like an honesty in his performances where it seems like there's no artifice and no pretension in his performance at all, in his best roles. This is not one of his best roles. And I think that's kind of the problem here. It's so phony. This is one of the most miscast performances I've ever seen. And it's not a thing where I I feel like I can can sort of get into Wahlberg here just because I... I think that he's kind of underrated as an actor in some ways, or at least he's mm-hmm. uh, he's uh, miscategorized by some people, I think. I think some people, they kind of underestimate him or they think that he only plays one type of character, which I don't think is true. Some people's rap on him is that he only 
works when he's playing a dumb character or like the quality of his performance is directly correlated to the intelligence or lack thereof of his character. And I don't think that's true because one of his best performances, maybe his best performance is in The Departed where he's the fucking mm-hmm. smartest person in the movie. He's the one guy who, who knows what's up and figures everything out. So I don't think that's what it is. But I do think that he can't play someone who is this much of a dork and is somebody who yeah. has no street smarts or like no social ability, someone who's who's smart in only one way, and that's he knows about science. You know what I mean? Like, that's just not Mark Wahlberg's thing. I'm not saying he's a dumb guy, although he says some dumb shit a lot of the time. But that's just not his thing at all. This is, if I don't know who would be good at this, but this is a little bit more of, like, it's funny you mentioned The Lost World. This is a little bit more of, like, if this was a a Jeff Goldblum 1996-1997 role, I feel like that would make more sense. But Wahlberg's performance here is so outside of the character in the sense that he can't play this guy. He just can't do it. So you yeah. can't commit to this character at all. I think it's very ironic that his two biggest missteps as an actor are both in science fiction movies because th- this performance reminds me so much of Planet of the Apes. Mm-hmm. Where oh, God. He's better in Planet of the Apes I, than this. Yeah, but I get the sense that when he was making both of these movies, he thought he was making something like Forbidden Planet, a true B movie. There's no tongue-in-cheek. There's no pretense with either, but I, I don't think he has the ability as an actor to comprehend the line between playing something for camp and playing something for, for dramatic when it's not set in stone. Because this script is not set in stone with what the fuck it means to be, and I think that's one of the problems, yeah, yeah. is that yeah. so much of the humor, part of it does come from the lines that are written, but a lot of it comes from the delivery and the way Shyamalan chooses to direct these actors. So I've said my piece of Mark Wahlberg with the Transformers shows. I think he's he doesn't do anything for me. I don't think he's a terrible actor. But M. Night Shyamalan is not Martin Scorsese. He's not David O. Russell. He's not Paul Thomas Anderson. And this mm-hmm. is the movie that proves to me this was his first chance to show that he's really an actor's director because look at every single leading actor he's had up to this point. Bruce Willis, mm-hmm. Samuel L. Jackson, Mel Gibson, Joaquin Phoenix, Paul Giamatti. None of them, I would say, are anything less than good actors. Mark Wahlberg, I think he can be good, but I wouldn't classify him as a good actor. So, to me, this is where I started to reevaluate Shyamalan as, is he really great with actors, or do his movies just work because he has great actors that know when to rise above his directorial notes? I think you're you're under, uh, definitely on to something here. This is a real George Lucas effect here in terms of the performances. This is a film where... There's so much more to direction than just, you know, sort of the camera work and the visual stuff. It also involves the performances and managing the performances. And if someone was doing a good job directing this movie, they would not allow Mark Wahlberg and Zoe Deschanel to do in this movie what they do in this movie. They would say, we need to do that again. We can't put that in this movie. This is not right. And it's not necessarily that the actor is incompetent, and it's not necessarily that it's the worst script that they've ever been given or anything like that, but it's just, this needs to be done again. This is not where it needs to be. We need to figure out what this is and how to make it work because it is not working out. And there's several performances in this film that are like that. Now, Wahlberg's is just the most laughable and it's the most obvious, and it, it's actually kind of most the most enjoyable. So in some ways, it's kind of better than some of the other bad performances in, in the film, but we, we can get into that. Let me put this performance into context, guys, and I think you guys are going to find this pretty amusing and it'll really explain what Wahlberg's doing here. Wahlberg had nothing to go on when he had this part. He didn't really know any teachers. He was kind of at a standstill as to how he was going to approach this role. That is until he saw how Shyamalan carried himself on set. Jesus Christ. So Wahlberg's acting choices 
And Wahlberg's responses to what happens to him in this film was the result of him watching how his director was responding to all he was doing. <laughs> so in a way, this is kind of a rib on M. Night Shyamalan himself. He says this was him uh, mimicking what Shyamalan was doing on this set. You, you're blowing you my watch this movie mind with, here. <laughs> if you watch this movie with that in mind, it makes a hell of a lot of sense. Well, I'm glad my Amazon Prime rental has 48 hours on it because now I have to rewatch it <laughs> with that in mind. That's fucking, oh my God, that makes so yeah. much sense. If, but then again, I, I will say though, if I was in Night Shyamalan, I would be pissed at hearing that. I would be like, that's what I sound like? That's what I act like? I act like a fucking dork like that? <laughs> now, Wahlberg has since denounced this film. He said in an interview a few years later for The Fighter that when he, Shyamalan, and A.B. Adams went to lunch thinking that Adams was going to be cast as his wife, that she ended up not being cast and she dodged a bullet. He takes pot shots at this movie every chance he gets. And by the way, in 2008, he had this and Max Payne. So there's a hell of a double feature. Uh, <laughs> I think I'd rather watch this than Max Payne. Max Payne is so fucking unwatchable, but not not in a so bad as good way. No, it's a horrible film. I've never seen it. Don't know what it is, really, other than that it's Mark Wahlberg in an action movie called Max Payne. But it just makes me imagine Mick Payne from The Simpsons. Matt, we found our video game retrospective guy. That's going to be my, Uh, for context, three words, video game movie. Oh, Jesus Christ. (laughs) The star Mila Kunis. Elliot is running his class, talking about the disappearance of honeybees while ripping a kid for being a great-looking 15-year-old who comes to the conclusion that nature needs to be respected. God, these lines are so weird. I like. I, what is this setting up? It's so. It doesn't make any sense. Also, because it's like he's this, this science teacher guy. And he's like, "All right, guys, come on. We need, we need to use science here. Let's figure this out." And like everyone's offering the suggestions, and then the one kid's like, "Just knack to nature. Something we'll never understand." He's like. Very good. It's like, no, that's not good. That's it. That's the, that's the exact opposite. What kind of science teacher are you? Are you showing your class the happening after you show them Lorenzo's oil? Like, what is this? It doesn't, it's, it's, I mean, in that way, maybe it's realistic to just, you know, I mean, I, when I think of back on my time. But anyways, this could be the longest podcast we've ever recorded because I, we're like one scene in and I'm, I'm already losing my mind. I'm just taking apart so many parts of this. Uh, it's just it, all of it. His weird dialogue with the kid. Like, how do you write that? And then you're like, I should give this to an actor to say. I would feel bad <laughs> writing that. Like, I would feel embarrassed to do that. I guess that's that's when when you have was it Newsweek say you're the next Spielberg. I guess you don't feel embarrassed about a lot of stuff because it's like I was gonna say we have said it for what six seven podcasts now, Mike. This is the confident M Night Shyamalan. He is doing this with so much confidence. He is not being told no. He is not being told these are bad lines. He's not being told, like Harrison Ford told George Lucas famously, that you can write this shit, but we sure as hell can't say it. Nobody's telling him that. They're just reading these lines thinking that still, even after Lady in the Water, even after The Village, this is the guy who is going to revolutionize cinema. He's the next Spielberg. And this is your result. Ugh. The class is interrupted by the vice principal who takes Elliot to a teacher meeting where Cameron from Ferris Bueller's Day Off is theorizing that what happened in Central Park was indeed an act of terror. So now this is once again M. Night Shyamalan commenting on terrorism. Or really just commenting on the sort of atmosphere. It's, it, it's weird. In 2008, you, you think terrorism. In this day and age, I keep, I keep thinking about the, uh, COVID. Like this is in some uh-huh. ways kind of a COVID movie pre-COVID in the sense that it's like yeah. it's affecting everybody in the world. 
at first they think it's a limited sort of thing, like, oh, we'll we'll ride this out for a little bit. And then it just forces people into increasingly isolated situations. And, like, the more people who are around you, the deadlier it is. It's a weirdly, like, it's not prescient. I, I was about to say prescient, but that's, it's not fucking prescient. It's just kind of a weird coincidence. But, I mean, I also think this is kind of meant to be, uh, definitely meant to be, like, a global warming kind of movie. It all kind of ties in together weirdly. Uh, I mean, I guess this sort of, like, that's a get to existential, but I guess that's just kind of life in the 21st century. It's just one increasing existential threat after another that we we make into Mark Wahlberg movies, you know. <laughs> well, the fact that the movie was originally yeah. called The Green Effect the Green tells Effect. you that this yeah. was going to have an environmental message. Yeah. And, and I think for marketing purposes, it was smart for Shyamalan to change it because you're able to subvert that until people go and see the movie. Right, but changing it to the happening is like the most... That's a terrible fucking title. Yeah. And I see why Stephen King was attached to this movie so much, not just because of all the drugs, but this premise reminds me a lot of of a Stephen King novel where it's a guy, kind of schmoey, gets involved in some kind of supernatural activity with a bunch of other survivors... This movie is, to me, like, if I had to compare this to a Stephen King novel, or or movie, I should say, it'd be Cell, in that it's got a message, but also it's so poorly made. Both movies are so over the top. Let's not forget, the opening of Cell is people going nuts in an airport, like, killing each other, planes are... Mm -hmm. It's nuts. So, I I see why, you know, there's elements of the stand in here, kind of... I thought the mist. Yeah, elements of the mist. Yeah, even kind of there's a little bit of Walking Dead. You think with the idea of people splitting up into groups. You know, who are the alpha males going to be? I was expecting more inner workings with the characters, but that's another problem I have with this movie is that as entertaining as these actors are, the focus is on Mark Wahlberg and Zoe Deschanel exclusively, and Mm -hmm. major disservice uh, to both of them. So we learned the first stage is confused speech. The second phase is physical de- disorientation or loss of direction. And the third stage is fatal. Shyamalan ends this scene with a long shot of a blackboard that has a quote about bees from Einstein written on it. This is so... I, You know, okay, first of all, the scene where Alan Rock is the principal is telling them, like, uh-huh. the first stage is whatever the fuck it is. Second stage is this. You know what it reminded me of? I bet you guys might have had the same thing, but the part in Airplane where Leslie Nielsen is describing <laughs> what the effects of the, of the food poisoning is on people while uh, Peter Graves is flying the plane, and he's like, first is profuse sweating, then the subject loses complete control of their bowels, and it's like, as he's saying, Peter's happening to Peter Graves. Like, and I, I, again, maybe I'm being a little, like, if this was a good movie, that would stand out to me. You know what I mean? But it's not a good yeah. movie, so that yeah. is standing out to me. What's also standing out to me is, once again, I saw in the opening credits, Shyamalan's DP is tagged Fujimoto. Mm -hmm. Shyamalan has a great DP here. So why the hell does this movie look so damn bad and cheap? I agree with that, actually. Um, What what is it that you think makes it look cheap in particular? Is it sort of the lighting? Is it kind of... Yeah, it's the lighting. It's the way it's shot. It it looks like it's shot on an iPhone, honestly. And I don't know if that's the B-movie feel that Shyamalan's going for. That could be it, but... I'm just saying each and every one of his movies seem like they have like a real polished feel. And I've always, no matter what I said about the movies, hell, even I said in The Village that I think is technically well made. Mm-hmm. This just doesn't have a good look to it. Matt, am I crazy on this? I'm stuck in the middle. I think the only time the lighting really bothers me is during the third act. That's to me where it looks extremely cheap. 
But most of the outdoor shots, I think they look competent, but it's about on par with what you'd expect from your average TV episode. Certainly not of the quality of this DP and this team. Yeah. This could be an episode of The Walking Dead or Lost or any of these other, you know, big budget TV shows. I don't think there's anything inherently cinematic with it. Hell, I can watch better gore effects and makeup work on The Walking Dead. You know, one thing that I think was kind of a bold, there's a couple bold choices, actually, think now that I'm sort of pondering it in the cinematography with these close-ups, these kind of really tight close-ups with almost a very wide, like almost fisheye lens. For instance, during the scene where they're running from the wind and Mark Wahlberg's freaking out, I need a minute, just give me a minute, all right, guys? And it's like really tight on him and stuff like that. And that's kind of a bold choice. I don't think it works at all. Mm -hmm. Or like uh, there's another part in the movie where there's almost like a Jonathan Demi staring right down the barrel of the camera right in the center of the frame type thing but it just doesn't work at all and so Tak Fujimoto of course worked with Demi a lot so there's a couple parts in this that I think they were sort of almost going for like this is this is our money shot but it like just doesn't add up to money we are then introduced to math teacher Julian played by John Leguizamo he says that he's talked to his mother trying to convince her that there's nothing that's going to happen in Philadelphia. And man, I thought about opening this show with an intro that consists of every single time a character says a variation of the film's title. But I think those take up at least a quarter of this film's 90-minute runtime. Yeah. I mean, it's the problem when you name your movie The Happening. In fact, like, I think everybody says happening several times a day. So it's just like, you know, it's not yeah. like you named your movie fucking Nocturnal Animals or something like that. Like, where if you, well, if you use Nocturnal yeah. Animals once in your film, then like, yeah, I might notice it. But like, you know, there's that. And then there's like everything that Leguizamo says is so strange in this film. He, he's, it's weird that he's in this. It's mm-hmm. weird when he's in things in general. Like, you know, uh, he, he's someone who like, he very rarely is in a movie and you just go like, yeah, I accept that John Leguizamo's part of this. There's usually some element of like, all right. And even when he works great, like, uh, I love him in Moulin Rouge. I think that's a really lovely performance. Even in something like Summer of Sam, where he's got the fucking lead role and I think he does a, a good job. But then oh, yeah. he shows he's up. great he, in that movie. Yeah. And he shows up here and his like first line is like, also weirdly, that no one who listens to this is going to give a shit at all. And that includes my family because my family doesn't listen to these. But uh, he looks so much like one of my uncles in this film with the glasses and the way his hair is styled and stuff like that. Anyway, uh, he shows up and he's like, hey, it's me. I'm your best friend, Mark Wahlberg. Remember me? I know you and your wife, Alma, played by Zoe Deschanel. And we're math teachers together. It's like so exposition-y and it's like really kind of embarrassing. Like, I, I, felt, I felt bad for him having to deliver that. And he has a couple lines like yeah. that. You guys have said that the title doesn't make any sense. You know, it, it's funny. When, you, when I think about the other titles, The Sixth Sense, you can kind of get a gist of looking at that film what The Sixth Sense is going to be about. Signs. We know that that's going to be something that has to do with aliens. The Happening? What is that detailing? <laughs> His know? titles are just getting more and more vague. As, as, yeah. I guess Lady in the Water is a little more specific in that there's two nouns there. But uh, it's like, it goes from, like, you know, <laughs> The Sixth Sense to the village so it's like we go we go from like noun and adjective sixth sense to just noun village to just not even <laughs> a noun really just like the happening which is just like the thing you know what I mean? it's just like well the thing's a great title but it's just like the yeah and it, it, it's just it, it's a nothing title and and when you do that it's like you better have some confidence in, in, in what you're making which he does but it still doesn't work so actually that was a, that was a bullshit statement on my part <laughs> Matt, what do you think about John Leguizamo in this film? His performance is the reason why I'm convinced Shaman was not making a B movie. 
Because Legozamo is playing it 100% straight. Yeah, yeah. Yes. He is playing it like this is Wolfgang Peterson's Outbreak or <laughs> yeah. any of those other... Contagion. You know, yeah, Contagion. I like him a lot whenever I see him. I love when he shows up in the John Wick movies where it's like, you know, mm-hmm. I, I'm glad he's not kicking ass or doing anything like that. Obviously, very talented comedian. Two Wong Fu is one of my favorite movies. But his casting is very weird because, like I said, he's on a totally different wavelength than Mark Wahlberg is. And you would think John Leguizamo, of all people, would know to play this for camp. Yeah. Um, but let's not forget this guy yeah. who made Spawn, for God's sake. But he's working with a director who's so self-serious yeah. that maybe he was told not to play it campy. I mean, that's the problem. I'm pretty sure he told him, don't ad-lib. I'm pretty sure he told him, stick to the script. I mean, can you imagine some Leguizamo ad-libs in this? You know what I mean? Like, oh, I know. He starts yeah. doing. Well, what's the name of his fucking the the, the thing he did? Uh, the the one man show. Oh, um, Latin, oh, Latin American history for morons. Yes, what about start doing some of that shit in this movie? You know what I mean? Like, get really in your face <laughs> about it. Uh, that would be something. Leguizamo, I've covered him on this show when I did the John Wick films with Jack and Alex. I feel I have everyone here, and we're going to get to the female lead of this cast here in a little bit. But is it safe to say, guys, that of everyone here, Leguizamo seems to be the one who is, I want to say, unscathed? Is that safe? Well, no, he, he he ends up out of the car, remember? He goes flying out of the car, so he's not unscathed. But no, no, I'm talking about as an actor. <laughs> I don't know if I'd say unscathed, because I don't think anybody comes out unscathed in this movie, but I think he does have the best scene in the movie. And I think he gives the mm-hmm. best performance in the movie. So, yeah, I, 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 I agree in principle with that. And let's be honest, this is the man who made five Ice Age movies. I don't know if he knows That's anything true. about walking away on skating. <laughs> he's, he's, he's a weird career. Like, what is yeah, he? Is, really he is he an actor? Is he a comedian? Is he a performance artist? It's like he's all of them. Is he a leading man? Is he a supporting guy? Is he a character actor? He's like, he's all of them. It's like, it's very strange. I'm looking at his Wikipedia now. I, recommend, I forgot he was in Romeo and Juliet. I recommend people putting in their Google machine his run-in with Steven Seagal on Executive Decision. Put that up. Check that out. It's fucking hilarious. I'm kind of obsessed with Steven Seagal and Steven Seagal stories. So when I saw that, it really it made me laugh. I'm not doing that. So, retro. Julian, I'll do that right now. No, <laughs> I won't make you do it. That's my own retro every summer as I watch the first few Steven Seagal films. So Julian convinces Elliot to take Alma and meet up with him and his daughter so they can leave town. And we are introduced to the idea that not everything in the relationship between Elliot and Alma is up to par. Let's think about this for a minute, guys. What the hell is going on with this relationship? We get some of it as the film unfolds with Alma getting a call from Joey, voiced by a cameoing M. Night Shyamalan, by the way. And then quickly discarding the call so that Elliot doesn't get wind of it. But this relationship really goes nowhere, and I truly just wish Shyamalan had either gotten rid of everything to do with it or just made one of them a single parent. It's fucking annoying. It's just fabricated drama. There's really no need for them to be arguing with each other, considering the resolution of this movie. And it's like he knows smartly when you make a film like this, when you make a horror film, a genre film, a thriller film, there has to be, or there should probably be, some kind of very human kind of relationship story at the heart of it. So it's Bruce Willis and his wife at the at the center of the sixth yeah. sense, and it's you know it's Mel Gibson and his wife and the signs, and it's you know various wives of kinds. But 
he completely drops the ball on that here because this relationship is so forced. It has no thematic tie-in to what's going on no. at all. You know what I mean? It's, it's not a reflection of what's going on. It's not about, you know, his crisis of faith or his, you know, uh, ability to, to reconcile with other people or anything like that. It's just, uh, it's a completely superfluous complication. That is bad enough on its own. So ineptly mm-hmm. executed, both because the writing is so half-baked and has no weight to it whatsoever, there's not even any kind of actual infidelity or any actual uh, disagreement mm-hmm. of any kind. It's not even like that. Ex- like I-, I love Jurassic Park, but like the whole thing about like he doesn't like kids, he doesn't want to have kids, and then by the end maybe he wants to have kids. Like that's a pretty paper thin kind of thing, but it just works because it ties into the right places. This doesn't even work on that level. Like this is so. It's like their marriage is falling apart because of some reason, and it come it gets back together because of reason. So Elliot tells Julian that Alma is acting distant and Julian saw her crying on her wedding day. So we cut to Alma played by Zoe Deschanel as she discards the call from Joey as I pointed out earlier. And I'm going to go on a limb here guys. I think she's worse than Wahlberg here. Positively. Oh interesting. I don't know if I'd quite go that far but it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a bad it's a bad 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 performance. I do kind of feel like Wahlberg is stretching himself a little bit but poorly like he's stretching himself uh-huh. in a way that like hurts his back you know what I mean? Whereas she's not yeah. stretching at all and that's the problem really. She's one of those actors who does something incredibly well and she does it so well that she kind of embodies a type. Do you know what I'm saying? I mean, in uh-huh. a way that can yeah. be very stereotypical, and that's not her fault. That's kind of sort of how the pop culture works and, 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 and gender roles in particular, but, you know, we can get into that. But I, another person that I, like, say is, like, an example that is, like, Jason Schwartzman. He's, like, a type of a person. You know, you it's, like, mm-hmm. that's, like, he's, they're the archetype. And Zoe Deschanel is the archetype for a certain kind of character in a certain kind of film in a certain era. And she doesn't deviate from that at all here. And that's such an issue because I don't want to lay everything at like an actor's physical appearance because that's, that is definitely not even 10% of what the issue is here and stuff like that. And an actor can overcome any of that and everything like that. She has such a, like a, a youthful kind of appearance and she's got those big eyes that mm-hmm. we associate with like a, a childlike kind of quality to it. And she plays this character as so really immature and kind of, absent-minded and like silly and the way that she performs so many of her actions are so childlike that it's a bizarre characterization where you don't understand what this person could possibly how they how they get along in life like that would this would work if she was in some sort of 2007 Sundance dramedy but this is not that you know what I'm saying this is not that kind of a movie so it's it's a strange movie where Mark Wahlberg is married to this weird child woman who has like nothing going on other like she has no ability to control her emotions and no ability to like control her impulses and like at one point she says oh I don't like to show my emotions either I'm like no you do you show them in your in your body language and in your giant eyes and stuff like that like you're showing it so like something's not adding up here yeah, she's no longer the cute, quirky girl like the majority of the stuff she's in. She actually has to play a character here. And yes, nothing in this movie is written, shall we say, well. But Deschanel is just really off in this movie. And once again, I think she's just totally miscast. All of her line readings sound like first takes. Yeah. Yeah, Especially good point. the line she has after watching the TV broadcast. I think that's the hardest I lack in this entire movie, that Shyamalan thought her delivery of, oh, it makes you kill yourself. Just when you thought there couldn't be more evil in the world. I can't believe you left that slide. That is not, I don't know, that, man. That is not the reaction you would have. 
we we're a few minutes away from talking about somebody talking to a potted plant. So that's a pretty bold statement to make. Well, yeah, I I mean, and that's that's a perfect. I, I wish I had written down that line because you're right that like that's the perfect example of a line where it's like, what is this person? Like, what what does this person have a thought going on in their head? Like, that's such a weirdly childlike kind of line. And another thing, like this is again, I'm just gonna be nitpicking stuff like that. But there's one point where she's like talking on the phone with M Night Shyamalan, who cameos as her, like weird not boyfriend and she's like <laughs> and she's like doing a whole like it's, it's like almost out of like a sitcom like she's so like it was just one time we just had we had tiara Mas- she mispronounces tiramisu also I, did you ever notice that like uh-huh. I, it, it's such a weird like when you talk I about did. one take i'm like yeah i would be like if i were Shyamalan, it's such a small thing i know but if i were Shyamalan, i'd be like uh hold on Zoe, can we um let's do that one again uh let's get the pronunciation of tiramisu right so that doesn't distract <laughs> The audience, or you know what I'm saying, and it's like it's fine if you want to mispronounce the tiramisu. Like, it was fine, but it's like I don't know, maybe acknowledge it, or I don't know. Mm. But it's very just. It's just so many things about this character are just mm. silly and don't make sense. And they were all things I'd forgotten about. I hadn't seen this movie in quite a while. It'd been at least 10 years since I'd seen it. So when I saw that, I thought, man, there's no way somebody could be bit worse than Wahlberg. But I think we saw it. So we see a newscast where they are evacuating New York City. And we hear that a neurotoxin is causing catastrophic effects on those exposed to it. We see a newspaper headline that reads, Philadelphia. And we cut to Elliot and Alma meeting up with Julian and his daughter, Jess, at the train station. So this girl playing Jess. Way back, boys. Way back a couple months ago when we reviewed The Sixth Sense, I had many good things to say about how Shyamalan directs child actors, and Matt called the way he handles them at that point very consistent. Cut to this little girl they cast as the girl who Elliot and Alma eventually adopt, and I wasn't just eating my words, I was gagging on them. What a horrible job this little girl does. She is horrible, guys. Well, this is one where I I lay the blame totally at Shyamalan because there's no yeah. character. There's not there's no, there's nothing. This character is no wants, no motivations, no no real fears other than just like, well, it's a scary situation, so she should be afraid or whatever. But even that is like so muted. It's like not effective at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is a complete nothing of character. She might as well be like it might as well, this is a weird Leguizamo might have might as well have like given them like his Japanese body pillow or something like that. And he's like, you got to protect it. It's my Japanese body pillow. It's very important to me. She has no agency, no effect. There's no actual emotional relationship. It's just like, here's the thing that you need to take care of or else John Leguizamo is not going to be happy about that. She is entirely here to give these Zoe Deschanel and Mark Wahlberg's characters some kind of thematic arc in that they have marital problems and a kid is going to bring them together. She is a prop in the story. She is not a character. Yeah. Mm. I guess prop is a shorter way of saying Japanese body pillow. That was a weird pull on my part. <laughs> we see in here that Alma is upset and she boards the train before everyone to avoid confrontation as Elliot begs Julian to just give her a chance. Give her a chance. <laughs> His line deliveries are just so... I don't know if it's great or bad when I'm watching this performance. We see and hear more wind hustling through trees as a cop kills himself, and a guy in sandals picks up the gun to do the same, as does a woman in heels. How about more of this, guys? This is... This is odd. There's so many things that are just like, I guess because this is just such a confused movie in terms of all the tone and everything that it just, it, it's weird to just pick one thing and be like, that shouldn't be. Yeah. But it's like, well, really none of this or like you, none of this should be here. Like once we start picking what shouldn't be here, we're going to be here all day. Exactly. It's unsettling, but the 
shooting it from the feet exclusively doesn't make it any more scary. Yeah. Like, you know what's going to happen, yeah. so what's the point of that? We cut to the train as Alma tells Joey to stop calling and says all they did was eat tiramisu together, and that was it. He tells her that Philadelphia was just attacked. God, this conversation sucks. We hear that Julian's wife is now headed for Princeton, with Boston also being hit with the neurotoxin, and the train stops at Filbert Station as Elliot is once again whining that they can't just leave everyone there. Uh, well, just okay. starts shivering. Yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. No, go ahead. Wahlberg's performance when they get to Filbert, which is great. Does anyone else think of the fucking turtle from Rocco's Modern Life? (laughs) Is that Filbert or Dilbert? Uh, Filbert. Filbert. Dilbert is the cartoon drawn by the crazy guy. Oh. Yeah. It's the one, the office worker guy. Anyways, uh, Filbert's the turtle from Rocco's Modern Life. When Wahlberg gets to to Filbert and he's talking to the train conductor guys, was that the worst moment in his performance? Like, what his his, his fucking, like, he's like, he's like, Hey, hey guys, what's going on? Like, I'm just gonna be doing the Walbert impression all night, I guess. Right? He's like, hey, what's going on? What's with the, what, why, why are we stopping here? And they're like, we lost contact. Goes, with whom? And it, it's, it's such a great bit of dialogue that no person would say. And if they would say them, that person wouldn't be Mark Wahlberg. You know, it, it's so yeah. good. And his like, his like little like pathetic, like impotent indignation with everything is so fucking funny. <laughs> like this, this is what's weird about this movie is there's parts of it where you're like, well, this character is supposed to be comical in a way. Shyamalan does want us to laugh at this character's goofiness. And then there's other parts where I'm like, well, that can't possibly be true. So he can't possibly want us to laugh here. So it's like, I mean, this is just an uncontrolled movie. He just Shyamalan just does not have control of the hose here and it's spraying everywhere. He also doesn't, yeah. if you look at Wahlberg's performance, this is the moment where he should escalate his performance and get upset yeah. or start yelling at these people. He does none of that in this movie. There's never a moment where he feels like he's losing complete control of this situation. And when he does, it's comical. And it's not as authoritative of it as it should be, as we'll talk about very, very soon. That's a good point. Yep. Yeah. Jess starts shivering, and they head to a diner where Elliot tells Jess about a mood ring, which turns yellow for Jess, who laughs on cue. Aw. We see a very comical video of lions attacking a zoo worker. <laughs> it's impossible not to think of Anchorman. I... Yes. <laughs> I understand what he's trying to do here. He's trying to recreate that science moment, right? We had some pretty bad things to say about science, but one thing we all said was that moment when we saw the home video, that was a pretty effective moment. And I know he's trying to do that here. He's trying to do it more graphically. But, God, it just comes off as awful. It really does. And it's so – I'm trying to think what exactly is the issue with it. You know what I mean? Because that kind of thing does work in science. Is it the blood? Is it the fact that we see the arm rip off and it it does look like – Luke Wilson going, well, this is goddamn ridiculous. I don't know exactly what it is, but it's something. It's that, and also it's also the amazing line of the woman watching it on there. Wait, is she watching it on her phone, or was it on the TV? It's on her phone, right? And the woman, and she goes, what kind of terrorists are these? <laughs> like, that's such a great, hilarious, like, if he, if that had been in a Zucker, Abram Zucker movie, that would be a line people would quote to each other all the time. That would be uh-huh. like, and don't call me Shirley, like, what kind of terrorists are Yeah, these? yeah. I get some textual for a moment. I think this is Shyamalan saying that he is literally biting the hand that feeds himself. 
nicely done, sir. So at this point, guys, believe it or not, we're only 30 minutes in. And I cannot believe that grown people, all of whom have been recognized for great work before this, written and performed this, a script that really shouldn't have even been performed at a high school play, let alone professional actors on this high a budget. At this point, it's pretty damn embarrassing. I would love to see a high school play version of The Happening, though. I'd love to see, like, my local, <laughs> local high school, like, put on The Happening, some sophomores playing Leguizamo. You know, it would just be fun. It would be a good thing. So everyone leaves for 90 miles outside Filbert, and Elliot can't find a ride. We are then introduced to a guy who runs a plant nursery. As Julian says that he can't get a hold of his wife, he leaves to find her and asks Elliot to take Jess for him while he searches for Yvette, his wife. This is an odd development, huh? So... Julian's just like, okay, very conveniently, I got to go. You take care of her. I'm going to go find her. I'm going to go find my wife, and boom. (sighs) Again, as you guys said, this little girl is just the prop, just to get these two to the end game, right? Yeah, it's stupid. It's stupid. It's bad writing. And it goes to show, again, like what we were talking about with his earlier films had like three or four characters, really. You know what I mean? And he could focus in and stuff like that. Now he's expanding it, and he's got to have characters who don't even – aren't even actual characters. They have names. They have human, you Mm -hmm. know, (laughs) appearance. But they don't don't have any actual humanity to them. We head to the exposition nursery – I'm sorry, the plant nursery – and we get the weirdest Oscar Mayer Wiener promotion ever as we hear how much protein is in hot dogs, which, according to this guy, get a bad rap. This is Somebody weird. actually wrote this, guys. This is so weird. He's not, a fun, he's not funny. Like, M. Night Shyamalan is not no, funny. he's I, not. I would not see an open mic with M. Night Shyamalan. He just would not be very good at that. And, like, this is his version of, oh, it's such a... Off, like quirk, a bad, bad line. And delivered by a guy who was uh, Frank Collison. He's a, a defined character actor. I remember one time I was watching it. I can't remember. It, it was not the most recent time, but it was at some point I was watching it with someone. And they go, oh, it's the guy from Deadwood. And I was like, wait, who is he on oh. Deadwood? No, no, here's the thing. I went, who is he on Deadwood? They go, you know, he's the, the guy. And I was like, oh, okay, let me see. Let me look it up. He's, he was never on Deadwood. He, he just looks like a oh. guy who would be on Deadwood. <laughs> I would call this guy a liar because hot dogs really don't have as much protein to make them nutritionally beneficial. But yeah, this is one of the worst non sequiturs in any. Oh man! Like it is so left field, and also like, yeah, you're gonna grab the hot dogs. What the fuck are you gonna cook them on once you're on the road? <laughs> yeah, you tell him. He says the plants release chemicals, and he tells the plants that they'll be right back. God, if those plants are so fucking dangerous, why do you have a goddamn greenhouse? That's my question. Meanwhile, Julian runs into a bunch of hanging bodies as he talks a woman through a car ride by giving her a math problem to solve. Just before the car runs into a tree, and Julian falls out of the car, and then he grabs a piece of glass. I think this is one of the things where he actually does get tension out of it, and there's actually kind of, there's some subtlety in it, and there's some tension in, in the way that there's like multiple things going on at once, and we don't know what is going to resolve first, or what we can expect necessarily. We might expect something to come from one, but we don't necessarily expect from the other. I think Leguizamo does actually a good job at selling this kind of like panic, but not trying to show the panic sort of thing. I think he does a very good job at that. And I think that the way that Shyamalan shows the, the sort of the hole in the, that's ripped into the top of the, uh, the roof that, of the car. That, that one little slit. Yeah. And you can tell, and the, the sort of little note of resignation on, on uh, Leguizamo's, face that kind of as he realizes that they're all doomed but he he decides to stick to this kind of coping mechanism i think this is actually probably the best scene in the movie in terms of like if you took this scene and you just cut it out of the movie and 
showed to somebody, they might think this comes from a really strong film. Uh, I do think that the body's flying out when he hits the tree is kind of funny, but uh, that, that might be mm-hmm. a little different. Yeah, it, it's the only scene that really does a good job of building up suspense, and Shyamalan yeah. does some good camera work where you don't see the bodies directly until the camera pans up. So you're seeing it when the when the characters do. Although really, he's just going to go out and slit his wrists. Like there, there's no nature wouldn't give him a more viable means to kill himself, especially because no one else gets out of that car except for him. Yeah, he seems virtually unscathed. That's true. <laughs> you think he's an unbreakable like Bruce Willis? Apparently, not. we don't see him die. Well, well, I love how what happens to him. He gets killed by a piece of glass. Holy shit! Oh, oh my goddamn nice. mind here. If we don't watch out, Mike's head will literally explode. We've blown his mind so much. This I don't know. I've seen this movie like five times. So it's like, I mean, in theory, my mind shouldn't be blown anymore. But I think that shows like, <laughs> how much is going on in this film. Exactly. We are then introduced to Private Oster. And we are hearing that there's barbed wire all over the military personnel. And cheese and crackers is this performance fucking stupid. I like the premise of all these roads. You know, everybody's coming around these roads. They're being closed and coming around. And it's like, we think this one's safe. No, it's not. Here come some people from that road. That premise is cool, but God, the execution is just shit. You've got scene. Jeremy Strong from Succession, like fucking like best yes. on TV or like one of them, and, and he's you know this fucking incredible you know effective subtle actor, uh, and he's he's, he's like Gomer <laughs> Pyle. It's, it's really yeah. And like I, I'm sure that this is a, a thing where Shyamalan is pushing him in this direction. Like he's he's playing. He wants him mm-hmm. to this guy as this rube who you know is like. He's yeah. Cracker, Sarge. Like, you know, it's, it's, it's not his fault. It's not good, but it's not his fault. Elliot tells someone on the phone to not let the person on the other end near a tree. And we hear everyone in Princeton is dead. In calculus, as they say. <laughs> we hear that plants can track specific threats and they communicate with other plants. We then hear that Arendelle. Is that how you say that? Arendelle? Something like that. Is the safe zone and that everyone should go there in two groups. So we see a side shot of people walking that just put me in mind of hobbits walking across Middle Earth (laughs) as we saw this. And we hear a confession from Alma that she had dessert with Joey to which Elliot answers, so you lied to me. Not that she cheated. She lied to him. It's also not cheating. No, not at all. It's not cheating at all. Like, I'm not saying you should go out and have tiramisu with every M. Night Shyamalan who calls you, but, like, it's, it's not even remote. <laughs> this is such a, it's like, are they in middle school? What is he, what is he worried about? I know. <laughs> like, he spends so much time around high school kids that he acts like one when it comes to his relationship. Yeah, yeah. And, like, oh God, this is so, this is, scene is so, it really does feel like it's edited, played, shot, like it's meant to be comic and i don't i yes. can't fucking tell if it actually is or not the way that Wahlberg delivers like you lied to me and like that it, it, it's like he's delivering it on a, a, a network sitcom or some or or, or, or a, a pg-13 rated romantic comedy or something like that like it's it's so mm-hmm. funny but I, I can't tell if it is because the thing is, if he does leave it that way, then there's no pathos that he can get out of it. You know what I'm saying? If if this is yeah. meant to be comical, then we have no emotional stakes in this. If it, is are we supposed to be hanging on this romance, this love story that's in need of resurrection, or is it just a bunch of these people are too comical idiots? And if they are, then we don't give a shit. Mm-hmm. That's a great point. You just can't tell if this comedy is intentional or not. 
So the private kills the plant and hot dog expert and then himself and Elliot is begging people to give him a second to be a scientific douchebag, which, by the way, was an ad lib from Mark Wahlberg himself. Okay, I've heard that. I don't so, know yeah, if that's Shyamalan, true. I would believe it. Well, I don't know. This doesn't seem like something that Shyamalan would write, but then again, who knows? Well, the, reason, the thing that makes me go, like, is that, could that be true? Because it's like all in one take. He's like delivering yeah. like exposition and stuff like that, and it's like a pr- fairly long take. So it seems weird to me that in between a line that Shyamalan scripted and another line that Shyamalan scripted, Mark Wahlberg would throw in, get scientific, douchebag, or whatever it is. It, yeah. I'm not saying it, it, that's outside of the realm of possibility, but it, it, that's one of those things that makes me like 90% of stories where you go, and that was improvised. I'm like, no, it wasn't. That, like the people who say that, like, yeah. uh, uh, I'm, go- I'm about to go on a tangent, but you know that part in uh, being John Malkovich where the guy goes, hey, Malkovich, think fast, and throws a beer can at his head and it hits him in the head? Mm-hmm. Well, uh, that's, I've heard so many people go, you know, that was improvised. I'm like, no, it wasn't. Are you kidding me? Like, no, someone didn't do a, an anti-Malkovich hate crime that got captured on camera and then he got a SAG card for it. Like, that's not what happened, you know. But anyway, I'm sorry. That's, that's, this will go, that'll be on the cutting room floor. Or not. I don't know. We'll yeah. <laughs> Elliot theorizes that something in the field is releasing the chemical into the air and begs those with him to just stay ahead of the wind. So now they're running from the wind, and they are now joined by two teenage boys named Jared and Josh. Elliot goes to a truck to see if it has a map. That's right, a map. He spots a house, and so then Elliot spots a plant. He introduces himself to it, talks to it in a positive manner, and begs it to leave them in peace before he catches himself talking to a plastic plant. How can Wahlberg be digging this so serious? How can this scene be written so serious? This but is it's so not, though. fucking That's stupid. That's, this, this scene is like the Dude. fucking keystone of the movie. And if, like, if I could crack it, I could crack it, but I can't. Like, you know, it's like, so obviously, like, it's got to be meant to be comical, right? Like, at the end of it, he's like, I'm, I'm still talking to the plant. Like, he's like, he's making fun of himself. But, like, if it's meant to be comical, why is it not shot that way? But is that what makes it funny? And is that, into, I, I don't know. This, oh my God. I, so, okay. Again, 48 hour rental. I'll watch it again. Figure this one out this time. If it's meant to be funny, it's hilarious. If it's not meant to be funny, it's humorous nevertheless. So it's a, it's a win-win for the viewer, but I get no sense from Mark Wahlberg that he is playing this for comedy. Because even yep. when he goes, oh, I'm talking to a plastic plant, there's no pause to let the audience laugh and catch their breath. Yeah. So I get no sense that it was intentional. It put me in mind of the movie we reviewed, the very last review, Matt, that we did of 2020 with Law. We did Gremlins. And in that movie, Phoebe Cates has that famous scene of her talking about why she hates Christmas. I think she's playing that serious. I think everybody's saying it's dark humor. I don't see that from Phoebe Cates. And I'm seeing the same thing here. Wahlberg is playing this so serious that I honestly believe he thinks this is a dramatic scene. And everybody except Wahlberg and Shyamalan see it that way. Uh, What if Leslie Nielsen had played this character? (laughs) It's a whole fucking different movie then. Elliot spots a guy getting run over by a lawnmower. As (laughs) As <laughs> Elliot confesses to the kids that he hasn't made a kid with his wife yet. I'm I'm sorry, I'm losing it again. This is just like Lady in the Water. Actually, it's not. It's better than Lady Water. But um, the guy getting run over by the lawnmower is hilarious. It's like something out of the Simpsons. The yeah, the two kids talking to Wahlberg about whether or not his penis works is very strange. They don't say the word penis, but like the kids, like what's that? He's just met this guy. He goes, Do you have kids? He goes, No. 
goes, what's the matter? You got some problem? And then looks down at his junk. <laughs> what? Like, who does that? I, uh, ah, uh, whatever. This also reeks of nepotism, because let's not forget, that's Abigail Breslin's brother. Oh, yeah. Oh, that's right. What happened to that guy? Yeah, for, he, yeah. he stopped making movies. He was Bruce Willis, the kid. Oh, yeah. Why is everybody in this movie an asshole? Because <laughs> the, the kids are assholes. Yeah, they everyone are. Everyone, with the exception of, like, all the side characters are assholes. Yeah, that's a good point. They spot a random radio, because Shyamalan is so big on randomness, guys. And Elliot confesses that he asked a hot pharmacist where the cough syrup is and then just says that he's joking. You know, for someone who was praised so much just nine years before how good his writing is, Shyamalan has really just let it all fall because we've mentioned it every podcast of this series, guys. There's some moment of dialogue in every movie where no matter how good it is, even in the sixth sense where you look and you go, that wasn't right. We have 90 minutes of that here. To the point where it's becoming like it's the text of his films. Do you know what I'm saying? Like it, it, yeah. it is becoming mm-hmm. the story that he can't write. You know what I mean? Or that he, his writing is taking. Yeah. Like it's, beca- it's overtaking everything else in it, I think. I think it is becoming more and more clear. Like the warning signs were there in the early films, and now it's just like full-blown you can't come back from it. Or I don't mean, know, you can't. They spot another house, and as Alma pushes Jess on a swing, they contemplate going in the house as Marky Mark sings to convince them that they're normal. But it doesn't take long for the kids to eat it, thanks to a shotgun. This was actually much more graphic in the original cut, and so Shyamalan cut it down. It doesn't look like that gun's even pointed anywhere close to the kid, but according to Shyamalan, it was much more graphic. At close proximity to that second kid, his head would not be there anymore. Yeah, exactly. I don't think Shyamalan even understands how ballistics work at this point. This is feeling like (laughs) Costner and JFK at this point. Like, you're like... like, Back and to yeah. the left. Getting out the charts. So at this point, Elliot says he needs out of this nightmare, and I can't agree with him more. Although I will say I'm having more fun with this movie than I did last week with Lady in oh, the Water. Oh, yeah. You what know you what the think? difference is? Is that Lady in the Water, it, it piles up so much of this uh, exposition and this, like, dense mythology and all these capitalized nouns, the guardian and the, all this and that and starfs and scrunts and fronts and floppos and everything. And it's so dense as far as that goes, that it just becomes like overwhelming and you, you want to stop the film in this. There's no mythology. There's no, intentionally from the beginning, he's like, this isn't even going to pretend to make sense. And that's just what it is. And so because of that, it's so much easier to have fun with it. Oh, I'm having fun with this movie. It's more eminently watchable than anything he's done since Signs. This is nowhere near as dull as The Village is throughout most of its runtime. We see another newscast that says the government might be involved. And then they find another house, this time inhabited by Mrs. Jones, played by Betty Buckley. So Betty Buckley is a legendary stage actress, perhaps best known for getting best featured actress in a musical due to her performance in the original musical rendition of Cats. Anyone else think she would have rather done the Cats movie from a few years ago than this movie? No. <laughs> no. What is she doing in this movie? Like, what, what is it? Is it Tennessee Williams? Like, what does she? What does she think that she's doing here? I guess that's like kind of a tradition. Is like the crazy old lady who is yeah. inexplicably southern. Because I mean, this is not. This is not in Mississippi. This is that's in okay. Pennsylvania. Yeah. yeah. This is where the movie kind of takes a turn where I'm like, 
huh, like I, I think maybe it could turn into something good here. I know it doesn't, but it, it, it almost threatens to at points where it becomes this kind of like almost like gothic movie about like these people trapped in this house with this Miss Havisham-esque crazy yeah. old southern lady who like has a house with these life-sized human dolls and like it's like this creepy antebellum sort of building. It almost like becomes a completely different film that I almost kind of want to see like Shyamalan do that kind of well, I guess it's sort of kind of a little bit what he was doing with the village, but that kind of uh, uh, more sort of not historical, but just something a little bit more gothic in nature. Well, we'll come back to this whole old people living in a house when we get to the visit in a few months. Yeah, it becomes a completely different movie here. Like it turns into a claustrophobic thriller for the next 20 minutes. Almost like they're being held hostage in this house. But once again, Brock Wahlberg's deliveries under <laughs> any kind of tension that Shyamalan attempts to uh, construct. Okay, let's get to it. So they have dinner in her house, and she quickly slaps Jess's hand as she reaches for a cookie. That was weird. It's weird. We find out that she grows her own food and that she doesn't maintain contact with others. She points them in the direction of the guest bedroom, and after Alma expresses concern for the house they live in, calling Mrs. Jones a little exorcisty, Elliot has the famous what no conversation with her. It's so good. It's so great. You know, I, at Matt's suggestion, I put that quote as an in-between stinger for the bloopers that I do at the end of these shows. And God, even though I've seen this scene many, many times, it, it never fails to crack, make me crack a smile. It's fucking hilarious. I don't know who the first person to say it was, but the person who said that it seems like when she goes, you've been trying, you're trying to kill me in my sleep. And he goes, what? No. It sounds like he does, which is not what his character wants at all. <laughs> it's so, his, his performance is so unconvincing in this scene that he doesn't even convince you that you think his character must be li- like, on some level, you're, you're buying know. this guy's lying, but it's like, he's not. Like, it's so, oh my God. Like, it is that, it's that bad. Yeah, he's so mm. earnest that he comes off as disingenuous. <laughs> right, exactly. So Mrs. Jones spots Elliot walking around looking at a doll, and then she orders them all to leave now. She makes her way outside, submitting herself to the toxin, and then we see her. Guys, this is a very, very well-known stage actress, and now we're seeing her bashing her head through glass in order to get at the... <laughs> I think this was shot. Oh. Trying to do his Night of the Living Dead homage. Absolutely. <laughs> is Shyamalan genuinely trying to scare us here? Yes, I think so. I think he, he is trying to make something that's a little... See, here's the thing. This is such a confused movie in terms of like what he's aiming for. In that I think on the one hand, he kind of wants to make something that's... I, he, I know he talked about like 50s B-movies, so like that's a yeah. touchstone. I think if you want to go for a more modern example, like some of the Sam Raimi films, where it's like funny and it's scary at the same time like we're having fun with it we're just having a good time but he also he's so humorless as a writer and as a director that it just does not work he doesn't shoot it in a fun way at all he shoots it with all of the kind of coldness and weight that you see in the sixth sense and unbreakable and signs in the village so there's nothing that is fun about the direction of it. There's nothing fun about the tone of it. And yet that does seem to be what he's aiming for. And that's why this movie is not a good movie. As much as I enjoyed this movie, it is not a good movie because what it's trying to do and what it actually does are so far apart. Is he trying? Absolutely. Is he succeeding? Positively not. 
Elliot finds Alma and Jess deep within the house, and Elliot theorizes that the plants must have grown more sensitive, and then goes into their first date. Aww. We get more great Shyamalan dialogue as they try to pass time, talking about mood rings. They finally make the decision to die together as a family, and they head out to the field to kill themselves. But just as sudden as it appeared, guys, the toxin disappears from the East Coast. Very random, which is something Shyamalan builds on every single movie. It's very War of the Worlds as well. Yeah, I thought of that too. So three months later, after sending Jess to what I hope is acting school, and a newscast theorizes that this act of nature is just a hint of bigger things to come, they seem to have started all over again as Alma gets what she wishes for, a positive pregnancy test, which brings them closer together than ever. This pregnancy scares me more than the fact that she has a child with Will Ferrell's character at the end of Elf. Isn't that fucking disturbing, by the way? I feel like we don't talk about that uh in elf that that happens that shouldn't it, there it's wrong like it's when, when at the end of the movie, they're taking care of a baby you're like no this is not this is on a genetic level on a legal level on every level this should not be happening anyways that's kind of the thing uh, john farrow series i don't know it's not i don't i don't feel comfortable with this uh pregnancy between mark Wahlberg and zoe did I don't think that this child is going to end up well. Uh, let me just put it that way. Also, one more thing. Don't you think that the news broadcasts in this movie are some of the worst, like, executed, yes. like, least convincing Absolutely. Fake, fake news of any, any, any movie? Yeah, it doesn't seem genuine at all. Like the majority of this movie. <laughs> Meanwhile, we cut to Paris. As the French are now given a reason to be snooty, they now have the toxin in their midst. As credits roll, boys, on The Happening. Matt, did you have anything to say about the final frames of this movie? No, I was I, I was just going to add that the news sequences are solely there to give Shyamalan the excuse of trying to come up with commentary on trying to rationalize the irrational and to give exposition without the characters talking about it. So it, it's purely a tool without being anything else. Yeah, and it's like the characters are so uh, unenlightened and unphilosophical that like they can't comment on it at all, and the writing isn't good enough to actually comment on it through like the actions or the events. So it has to cut to some fucking fake talking head. He couldn't even have shelled out to like do the classic thing of like having Jay Leno show up and be like, "Hey, you hear about this? Uh, yeah, plants killing people. It's pretty crazy." Like you know that kind of. Classics or, or Larry King, you know, I'm on the phone with scientists who are talking about, you know, I'm, this is a lot of impressions tonight. I'm sorry about those guys. <laughs> yeah, you're on a you roll today, you sir. <laughs> <laughs> That's the happening. On a scale of 1 to 10, this should be interesting. This conversation was kind of all over the place, so I'm really curious to hear this. What do we give the happening? Matt, sir, you go ahead and go. Is it even possible to give this movie a numerical score? I know. <laughs> <laughs> This is this is the one time where I think the numerical score kind of hurts this show because I I agree with you, but <laughs> like because it's not a good movie, nowhere near is it a good movie. But I like it more than the Village and Lady in the Water. I think it's intentional or not, it's more entertaining. And if you want to read it as a B movie, it succeeds. But if you're someone like me, I don't think it's intentional. I think it's Shyamalan retroactively trying to justify the fact that he just made a steaming pile of crap. But for sheer enjoyment and for the, you know, there's some some decent, like, the kills are, are just so absurd, like the lion and the lawnmower. I have to give him points for creativity because you need good kills in a horror movie, which God knows he's trying to pass this off as. 
But Shyamalan also has a tendency to unfortunately get very judgy. And this is a very judgy kind of movie. And he's not even subtle about it. Like, literally, there's a scene. The most eye-rolling moment in this movie is when they're leaving that fake house. There's a big billboard, and, and the big headline is, You deserve this. Almost as saying that we as humanity deserve our fate to have Mother Nature pull down her pants and just shit all over us and wipe us out. So, with all that said, I settled on a five. It's smack dab in the middle of of his movies for me. It's nowhere near a masterpiece, but it's nowhere near some of the unwatchable, just complete, irredeemable movies, which one of them I've already talked about, and there may or may not be another one in the near future. So I guess by default I have to pick a five, but to be honest, numerical scores for this movie are entirely superfluous. Uh, I agree with the fact that a numerical score on this film is kind of... uh, helpful you know really is the kind of thing like it doesn't tell you like if you give it a high score it makes it sound better than it is if you give it a low score it makes it sound worse than it is like if you give it a middle score you don't con- you don't convey how like enjoyable it is like it, it this is really like i feel like you have to give it like a color like i don't or like you know it's like this is a chartreuse a, color, like, a yeah, mood ring yeah give it a mood oh, ring shit, you're fucking right <laughs> also by the way the thing about the mood ring is that when he first puts it on you almost think it's a bad prop wedding ring, but you're like, oh, someone really didn't do a very good job picking out a prop wedding ring there. It's like too big and fake looking. And then later he said, so that's not on the film. But anyways, so I've actually got, this is how I've determined how I'm going to figure out the score of this film, which is that it's better than Lady in the Water and it's better than, it's better than Lady in the Water, which I think I gave a two to. So it's at least a three. And at the same time, it's more enjoyable, actually, than, like, The Village or even Signs, and it's all, even though it's worse. So, and I think I gave those movies a five, so this would have to be at least a six. So I'm either going to give this a three or a six. And the way I've determined this is I'm having, I've had the stopwatch on my uh, phone running for the past couple minutes, and I'm going to hit it at random. And if the sum of the numbers of the time added up is an odd number, I'm going to give it a three. And if it's an even number, I'm going to give it a six. So let me find this out right now. All right, let's see. Three plus four is seven. Plus seven is 14. Plus nine is 23. Plus eight is 31. So that's odd. So I'm giving this a three. There you go. Wow. That's a very scientific way to come up with your score for this, sir. Yep. Uh, I'm with both you guys. It is impossible to give this a numerical score. But in the end, I went with Matt. I went ahead and went five because I I found this to be a lot like some of those Child's Play sequels we did, Matt, where it's not really a good movie, but it is infinitely watchable. I was quoting this movie all fucking week. I watched it at the beginning of the week, and then I watched it again at the end of the week just so I could get a gist on exactly what I was going to say about it. And I couldn't stop quoting it. I was quoting it at work. I was quoting it in my home life. So in a way, after Lady in the Water was over, I was just like, I'm putting that away. It'll probably never be watched again. Fuck that movie. But after this movie, I was just like, God damn. There's nothing going on in this movie that's good. There's no good writing. There's no good directing. The acting, hell, we've ripped on that for at least an hour in this hour and a half podcast. But I found myself enjoying it. Still, it's not good. So I want to go five because it's smack dab in the middle. Can't go yes, can't go no, so I'll just go in the middle with five. But where will we go next week? Next week, Shyamalan decided to dip his toe in the waters of a franchise. And honestly, I have seen next week's movie, The Last Airbender, one time. I don't remember it at all. I remember walking out very, very confused. But I wasn't a watcher of the show. Matt, what are you expecting next week? I'm expecting a... I guess you could call it a spirited discussion because I think 
all three of us might come at it from a different angle as far as expectations and between Lady in the Water and The Visit, I didn't see any of his movies in the theater. So this followed sweet. I had numerous reasons to not seek this movie out, but I did finally watch it, and, and I have words. Mike? I've never seen it. never seen the show. Don't know anything about The Last Airbender. Don't know what an airbender is. Don't know anyone in the movie from what I can recall. Here it's terrible. Well, the guy from Slumbog Millionaire. Oh, Slumbog uh, what, Dev Patel? Yeah, he's the villain. Yeah. I love Dev Patel, uh, yeah. or I like Dev Patel at least, uh, and so that should be fun. Um, uh, famous last words. Uh, I hear it's terrible. I hear it's not even fun terrible. Maybe that'll be good for this podcast. I don't know. We'll see. I'm going to watch this one, and I hope that there's nobody else around when I watch it. <laughs> like, I, I, just, like, if I'm watching, like, The Sixth Sense, people are like, oh, cool, Sixth Sense. If I'm watching The Happening, people are like, ha-ha, The Happening. If I'm watching The Last Airbender, I don't think that's, good. that's a good thing to do at this trying time. All right. So until next week when we talk M. Night Shyamalan's Last Airbender, science will come up with some reason to put it in the books, but in the end, it'll just be a podcast. Thanks, guys. says hi. She says she's sorry for taking the bumblebee pendant. She just likes it a lot. The Binge Movie Aftertaste is produced by Garrett and Matt. Joseph, did you load that gun? You won't get hurt. Elijah was wrong. There's a monster outside my room. Can I have a glass of water? Voice narration done by Adam. You, alone, will follow the road and leave Covington Woods. by Garrett. Maybe people are setting off the plants? What are you saying? That guy was crazy. We have to save them. They're already dead. 
suppressors. Send ships, drop those things. There's, um, there's lots of visual tension. To whom am I speaking with now? Dr. Fletcher, it's Barry. Today is your coming out party. At least you know what to wear. this decent setup as mike has set up is completely halted when we meet our lead character science teacher elliot moore played by an extremely miscast mark Wahlberg. no it's so funny tidbit yes oh go ahead no no you you tell me the tidbit i want to hear it Uh, all right so what no it's a completely superfluous it's a completely superfluous um uh (laughs) that's the line uh it's a completely superfluous like uh what no these two terrible performances by Mark Wahlberg. Should we go into Zoe Deschanel here? Well, I'm going to here in a little bit. Give me a little bit. Okay. So, what? No. Leguizamo might have might as well have like given them like his, his Japanese body pillow or something like that. And he's like, you got to protect it. It's my Japanese body pillow. It's very important to me. She has no agency, no effect. There's no actual emotional relationship. It's just like here's the thing that you need to take care of, or else John Leguizamo is not going to be happy about that. Is this the first mention of Japanese body pillows on your show? I don't. I haven't listened to every episode. <laughs> I, I don't know. I think when we talked about Transformers, it was mentioned once or twice. Uh, Matt, anything to add to that? What? No. It's the one, the office worker guy. Anyways, uh, Filbert's the turtle from Rocco's Modern Life. If I wanted Filbert, I wanted the person he was based on, Woody Allen, to be in this movie. Oh, well, as the Mark Wahlberg no, character? I, yeah, if swap out Mark Wahlberg for Woody Allen... I mean, it would fit because Zoe Deschanel's his co-star. <laughs> oh, jeez. I was looking for Qbert myself, but that's that's a whole other thing. Oh, he, he, uh, he's also, he got his own movie called Pixels. <laughs> yeah. Well, what I was going to say is that... What? No. 
Until next week when we talk M. Night Shyamalan's Last Airbender, science will come up with some reason to put it in the books, but in the end, it'll just be a podcast. Thanks, guys. Oh, boy. That podcast just happened. Ah, all right. <laughs> no, it'll never stop, sir. Swing away, Meryl. Meryl. Swing away. You've been listening to the Binge Media Podcast Network at BingeMedia.net. Support the show by donating on Patreon at Patreon.com slash BingeMedia. Subscribe to us on iTunes. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And don't forget... Shut up! I'm waiting.